Well, good morning, Sun Valley. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I am up here of my own volition. <laughs> At least that's what John told me to say, so. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm privileged to be preaching God's word to you this morning. And I'm excited to preach this chapter. Yes, a whole chapter. John spent three years going through Psalm 119. I'm going to go through Acts 14 in hopefully 30 minutes. Acts 14, rather. Acts 14 is, is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I love it. Because throughout this chapter, we see what faithfulness looks like under pressure. You see, throughout his epistles, Paul has a great deal to say about suffering. He has a great deal to say about endurance, joy, persistence, devotion, hope, patience. But what does that look like in action? What does that look like when we're faced with severe pressures from the world? Paul, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? And the answer is found here in Acts 14. We really see in this chapter, we see Paul's theology in action. Excuse me, I have to put a timer on. We see that faithfulness under pressure, faithfulness under pressure is evidenced by a resolve to proclaim God's word. Faithfulness under pressure is evidenced by a resolve to proclaim God's word. It's seen in a humility that puts God on display and a relentless courage to keep going and a commitment to the building up of Christ's body. Faithfulness under pressure is evidenced by a resolve to proclaim God's word, a humility that puts God on display, a relentless courage to keep going, and a commitment to the building up of Christ's body. Today's passage sees Paul and Barnabas traveling all throughout the central region of modern-day Turkey. They're on their final leg of their fish first missionary tour, and the cities that we just read about are the final stops of that tour before they return home to their sending church. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Holy Spirit to go out and proclaim God's word to the nations. And so from there, from Antioch of Syria, they, they sailed to Cyprus and they proclaimed the word of God to the people of Cyprus. And then from there, they make their way up to Turkey and into the central mountainous region of Pisidia. In Pisidia, there's a key city of Antioch, not to be confused with Antioch of Syria. And it's here in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas enter into the synagogue and proclaim God's word. And after some struggle between the Jews and the leading people of the city, they're chased out of town. And so Paul and Barnabas, undeterred, continue on to the next city of Iconium, which is about 80 miles down the road. And here we see their proclamation among mounting pressure. 
Now at Iconium, they entered in together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Darby, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Proclamation among mounting pressure. The passage says that they entered together into the Jewish synagogues. And not only that, but they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This was Paul and Barnabas' mode of operation. Whenever they would enter into a city, they would, they would seek out the Jewish synagogue if there was one. Paul's heart was for his brothers and his fellows kin to follow after the promised Messiah. This is why he wrote in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And so Paul and Barnabas make their way into the synagogue and so they can proclaim God's word to them. But notice first that Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This can literally say that a great multitude of Jews and Greeks believed. But what was it about Paul's message? What was it in the way that they spoke that drew so many people to this saving message? It doesn't say here in the text before us, but I think we get a glimpse of what that looks like in Acts chapter 13. In Antioch, they do the same thing. They enter into the Jewish synagogue and they proclaim God's word to the Jews and the Gentiles who are there. And based off of Acts 13, I want to suggest that what was so appealing to Paul and Barnabas' message is that they preached with clarity and conviction. They preached with clarity and conviction. When given the opportunity to expound God's word, Paul and Barnabas lead their listeners through the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, moving their way to Egypt, pointing their listeners to this promised Messiah who was going to come and finally was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This man was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was turned over and handed over by the leaders of Jerusalem. And so they clearly walk through the Gospels, through the Old Testament, leading them to Christ. It was clear and concise. They were not confused about the message that they were proclaiming, and neither were the hearers. They were clear. And not only that, but they were convinced of this message. They were convinced of this message. We see that they're convinced because when they start to revile them, when the people start to revile them in Acts chapter 13 and start contradicting everything that Paul and Barnabas are saying, they don't back away. They continue boldly on. 
So the question is for us, are we clear on the message of salvation? Are we clear in our gospel presentations? Not only that, are we convinced of it? Are we convinced of this message that we hold dear? See, people have a hard time responding to the gospel if they don't understand what's being said. This is why Paul, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, asks for the church to pray for them so that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Clarity. In similar fashion, people rarely respond or are rarely convinced by something that we ourselves are not convinced of. It's like those, those salespeople who come to your door and knock on your door and want to sell you like a security system or something like that. And they're always like 18 or 19 years old, right? They're always kids. And they're nervous. They're scared. They don't really know the product that they're trying to sell you. And bless their heart, they try. They read through their bullet points and they're just hoping that you say yes. And when you say no, they are so quick to run out of there, <laughs> right? They're not convinced. And as rarely is anyone going to be convinced of something that we ourselves are not convinced of. And we see what the result is from them boldly proclaiming the word of God and the hearts that are being transformed there in Iconium. It says the unbelieving Jews of Lystra stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. This word unbelieving can literally be translated disobedient. The disobedient Jews of Lystra stirred up and poisoned the minds. See, faith in Christ is more than just an acquiescence of mere facts about who Jesus is. It requires submission and obedience. It requires that we turn from sin and towards righteousness to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is why John wrote in his gospel, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Because these Jews are disobedient and refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they act against Christ's messengers by poisoning the minds of the Gentiles, literally poisoning their whole being. Their psyches is the way we can translate minds. Their whole being is embittered towards Paul and Barnabas. It's not just a disagreement with what they're saying. It's their whole being is turned against what Paul and Barnabas are saying and doing. But instead of fleeing from it, Paul and Barnabas continued to proclaim the gospel with boldness and authority. Boldness and authority. The wording of verse 3 is an interesting one. It says, So they remained. So they remained for a long time. It says Luke, it's as though Luke is saying, because things were starting to get a little bit dicey, 
because things were starting to get volatile, because now things are starting to ramp up against Paul and Barnabas, now they're going to stay. Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time. They didn't shirk back from the things that were being said against or done against them. They remained for a long time. They embraced, they embraced it. Just as the enemy was ramping up against them, their message ramped up. And they began to proclaim God's word with boldness and authority. C.T. Studd was a missionary in Central Africa. And he said this. He said, let us not glide, glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. There's going to be two services of thanksgiving as we're welcomed into the kingdom of God and Satan finds out that we have left the field of battle. See, friends, Satan and his minions love nothing more than to see to it that those who follow Christ slip into eternity without being fearless proclaimers of God's truth. And the way he does this is by ratcheting up persecution against believers. I'm going to say that again. Satan and his minions love nothing more than to see to it that those who follow Christ slip into eternity without being fearless proclaimers of God's truth. And the way he does this is by ratcheting up persecution against believers. But faithfulness under pressure requires that we be bold with the message that God has endowed to us. And Paul and Barnabas were able to proclaim boldly because their message was authenticated with God's authority because the Lord worked signs and wonders through them. Miracles accompanied and gave authority to their message. Now we believe that the sign gifts have ceased because the canon of Scripture is completed. We no longer need the sign gifts to accompany our message. We have the full weight of God's authority here. All we have to do is simply proclaim it. Finally, we see that uh, Paul and Barnabas continue proclaiming with persistence. They proclaim with persistence. As a result of Paul and Barnabas's boldness, the city becomes divided. And finally, a threat and plan were hatched to take their lives. Paul and Barnabas were fearless, no doubt, but they were not foolish. They heard that a threat was made against their life and that their life is now in danger. And so their work in Iconium for the time being was now finished. And so they must go on to the next city. And it says they fled to the surrounding region of Laconia, to the cities of Lystra and Derbe, and continued to proclaim the truth of Scripture. They continued proclaiming the gospel. Persecution fuels the spreading fire of evangelism. Paul was on both sides of this. 
Paul advanced the kingdom of God before he was even in the kingdom of God. And he did it by persecuting the church. We see this in Acts chapter 8 and 9. Paul advanced the kingdom of God before he was even in the kingdom of God because he was persecuting the church. And as the church was being persecuted, the gospel went forward. And now he's on the other end of it. He's being persecuted and chased out of town. And what does he do? Him and Barnabas continue to proclaim the gospel. Now, we're going to look at what it means to be humble amid false worship. What does humility look like amid false worship? Paul and Barnabas, they enter into Lystra, which would have been 18 miles down the road from Iconium. They enter into Lystra, and Paul doesn't enter into the synagogue. Paul does not enter into the synagogue. This is probably because there was no synagogue there. There's probably a small Jewish presence, if any Jewish presence, in this city. And so whenever he does this, whenever he is in a city that does not have a synagogue, he does the next best thing. He goes to the street. And Paul is speaking in the streets, and there's a man who is sitting there listening to Paul's message. And it says that the man had faith to be made well. But I think the word in Greek, uh, the word in Greek can be also rendered that he had faith to be saved. And I think that's a better rendering of the word, given the context of what's taking place. I believe this man is sitting there listening to the message as Paul is proclaiming the truth of God. And he's listening with the ears of faith and believe that the message of salvation was for him. And so as Paul preached and this man listened, Paul authenticated this man's faith by an act of healing. Or rather, God authenticated this man's faith through the hands of Paul and healed him. And the result's kind of comical, actually. The people look at the situation, they see what has taken place, they've known this man for a long time, they know that this man has been crippled from birth, has never walked before in his life, and now he's running around like a crazy man, as we all would if we were in his situation. And it says they began to shout in their native tongue. Paul and Barnabas didn't speak Laconian, so they didn't know what was going on. They were shouting and screaming and saying that the gods had come down to them in the likeness of men. They viewed this as an act of a god or gods. And we notice that Barnabas is given the title of Zeus, who was the guardian deity of Lystra. And Paul they viewed as Hermes, who was the chief speaker, as the text says. Hermes was, was tasked to relay the messages from the gods of men. He was also the son of Zeus and Maya. And if we understand the, the folklore that was taking place, the mysticism that they believed in those days, we can understand why they responded the way that they did. According to tradition, this was not the first time that Zeus and Hermes had actually visited the city. They had visited once before and in a similar situation to Paul and Barnabas. They were incognito. They were travelers. 
And according to this tradition, nobody were willing to take them in, except one household, Philemon and Baucis. This couple took in uh, Zeus and Hermes and gave them a great feast and gave them a place to stay. But as a result of this city's faithlessness to these, these gods who had apparently shown up, they wiped out the city. Those are the types of gods you want to serve, right? They wiped out the city. But Philemon and Baucis, who took in Zeus and Hermes, they turned their house into a temple, which would have been the temple there in Lystra. And when they died, Philemon and Baucis, they turned into two giant oak trees. This was the legend that was going around. So you can understand why these people responded the way that they did. They didn't want to mess it up again. They did not want to mess it up again. They wanted to make sure that they did it right. And so they go and they get the things to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. They get the garlands. They're getting it all ready. And when Paul and Barnabas finally figure out what's going on, it says that they ripped their clothes, they ripped their garments, and ran out into the crowd. This was a Jewish custom that was usually done in moments of great distress or grief or when blasphemous things were said against God. We saw it when Jesus was on trial, didn't we? When the Jews were pressuring Jesus and asking him and asking him and saying, are you the son of God? And finally, Jesus responds and says, I am he. They, they, they respond by rendering their garments because they think that Jesus is blaspheming God. But in reality, he's speaking the truth. And so Paul and Barnabas act in humility. They rip their garments because they know that what's taking place is not an affront against them, but it is an affront against the God and whom they're trying to proclaim. And you can really see Satan at work behind the scenes. In the previous towns, Paul and Barnabas had just been chased out and threatened with their lives. Now, they're being worshipped as gods. Satan is trying to silence these men. And the way that he's trying to do that is through persecution. Sorry. Through persecution. But when that doesn't work, Satan switches tactics. And now he's, he's trying to elevate them to the status of God, hoping that Paul and Barnabas will do it. Satan's been using this scheme since the dawn of time, hasn't he? With Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, if you eat this fruit, you will become like God. He used it on Jesus in the wilderness. If you will but bow down before me, you will have this whole kingdom. And now he's using it against Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. How often Satan uses this trick against his church. How often this trick works in bringing down the leaders of the church. By simply offering them blasphemous praise, many have made shipwreck of their faith, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 
By offering them blasphemous praise, many have made shipwreck of their faith, and Satan loves to use it. But if we bring it down to our level, how often does Satan use this in our own lives? How often do we elevate ourselves before others? How often do we elevate ourselves to the status of God without ever recognizing that we do it? This is the whole point of John's sermon last Sunday. Humility. Faithfulness under pressure does not capitulate to the worldly praise that is thrown our direction. Instead, we must clothe ourselves with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So Paul renders their garments. Paul and Barnabas render their garments, and they run out of the crowd. And then they proclaim truth to them. They desire that their hearers would turn from the vain idol worship that they are bestowing upon themselves. That they would, be, they would turn to the living God. Paul understand that their worship was vanity. And he knew well what the psalmist meant when the psalmist said, Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Paul is desirous that he can move these people away from vanity to life. And the way he does that is by presenting the God of life. But notice that Paul doesn't dive into a diatribe about the history of Israel. He doesn't, he doesn't proclaim how Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He doesn't start there. He meets them where they need to be met. He starts at the beginning. He begins at the beginning. He's trying to dismantle their polytheistic worship by proving that God is one. By proving that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And not only is he the creator of the heavens and the earth, but he sustains and gives life to all beings. God has providentially cared for these people throughout the ages. He has given them rains, fruitful seasons, food, gladness of heart. All these things are good gifts that God has given not only to those who believe in him, but to all of mankind. God has revealed himself in this way. And the way that Paul is addressing this group is, is similar to the way he addressed the people of the Areopagus in, in, 17, in, in chapter 17. And really, chapter 17 is a commentary of Acts 14. Because Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't finish his message here. Paul and Barnabas don't finish their message. They're trying to prove to these listeners that they can have life in the God who gives life. He has revealed himself in nature. He's revealed himself in the things that can be seen. But the nations have turned away from this God. 
And as they're trying to expound more about who this God is, it says, it says that the crowds still wanted to sacrifice to them. Paul, is, it, Paul and Barnabas are trying to deflect the glory. They, they humble themselves. And they're trying to, to point these listeners to the living God. But it's not long before issues arise in this crowd. Because we see in the next section what it looks like to be relentless amid persecution. You see, this tactic that was used by Satan to silence Paul and Barnabas didn't work. So now, the next option is to kill them or try to kill them. In verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Relentless amid persecution, and really relentless courage amid persecution. Richard Warmbrand is the man who started Voice of the Martyrs. He was a pastor in Romania during uh, the Soviet bloc and when communism was running rampant and he was, he was in the prisons because of his faith. And he tells this story. He says this. He says, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. It is understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. <laughs> the following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room, and after what seemed to be an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloodied and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing, and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? The progression of persecution is escalating in the life of Paul and Barnabas. And this is nothing new because earlier in Acts chapter 3, we saw the same progression taking place. Peter is arrested, and they are threatened to not preach the gospel anymore. Stop preaching. And of course, Peter says, no. Then it resulted in them being arrested again and beaten. And again, they said, no. And finally, it resulted in the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. We see the progression escalating. And a similar situation is happening here in Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas were threatened in Antioch. And when they go to Iconium, when they go to Iconium, a plot is made against their life. Now their life is in danger. 
And then finally, we see the culmination of that persecution by way of stoning for Paul and Lystra. Satan has tried silencing Paul and Barnabas with threats. He has tried enticing them with worldly praise, and now he's trying to end them by stoning Paul. But notice what Paul does. He gets back up, and he goes back in. He goes back into the very city that just tried to kill him. Imagine the sight, bloodied and bruised, a battered man on the verge of death, and he goes back into the city that just tried to kill him. And he could have ended there. He could have said, no, I am done. I should go back to the praise that was offered me. But it says that him and Barnabas continued on to Darby, which would have been a 40-mile journey from where they were at the very next day. They didn't stop. They continued on. They got back up and went to the next city and proclaimed the gospel. And many disciples were brought in at Darby. This was the final leg. This was the final stop. Darby was the final stop of their first missionary journey. And now they're on their way back home. And the easiest trek back to Syria would have been through Cilicia, through Tarsus, and back to Antioch. All they had to do is continue east, go back through Paul's hometown. But notice what they do. They go back to the cities that were just persecuting them. They go back to Lystra. They go back to Iconium. They go back to Antioch. It'd be easy to say that Paul was just some super extraordinary man. And he was, he was endowed by the Spirit, certainly. God used him in mighty ways, definitely. But the same Spirit that dwelt within Paul is the same Spirit who dwells within us. And throughout the day, throughout today, we have living, breathing examples of what this looks like on a day-to-day basis. We have brothers and sisters who are faced with forms of persecution that we dare dream of. Yet because they have the Spirit of God dwelling within them, they're able to face death with boldness and courage, just as Paul and Barnabas did. They can say, and we can say, when we're faced with similar situations— Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. There's, there are, there's some booklets out on the welcome table, and I want to make reference of that now. Uh, they're prayer guides for the persecuted church. Today is, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. 
And those booklets on the welcome table are, are, are helpful guides for you to pray for those who are enduring suffering. And it's a 52-week it's a guide, and it goes through the top 50 uh, most persecuted nations in the world. I would, I would highly suggest picking up a booklet on your way out and being praying for your brothers and sisters. But Paul and Barnabas, in the face of persecution, returned to the towns that they had just faced, just fled from, and they do so for the sake of the new believers that are there. They return to these small, terrified churches in order that they can build them up. Paul and Barnabas were committed to the building up of Christ's body. It says they return to these cities and they strengthen the soul of the disciples. They encourage them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them for every, in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga and went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that had been fulfilled, that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas had done their duty. They had done their job. They had done what they had been sent out to do. They went and proclaimed the word of God to the nations. This is their first of three missionary tours, of Paul at least. But they had finished their first set. But before they could return home, before they could return back to the home base, they had to equip the saints for the difficult days that lie ahead. They wanted to strengthen the church. They needed to strengthen the church. And they did so by equipping the saints. And this is a twofold equipping. This is a twofold equipping. They equipped the saints by first teaching, they taught the saints. They wanted to set up these churches for success. And the way to do that was to teach them how to think through the things that were heading their way. They wanted to strengthen their souls. They wanted to encourage them. And they wanted to tell them that things are going to get difficult in the days ahead. Following Christ means bearing the cross. To wear the crown means to wear the cross. So they take time to help them through what it means to be new in this Christian walk, what the newness of life in Christ means. They want to push them and encourage them towards greater godliness. And they want to make sure that they are fully aware of the toils and hardships that lie ahead and the joy that comes with it. They don't just simply convert and run but they want to make disciples. The second way in which they equip these believers is by establishing elders in these churches. They understood that they, these churches needed to be led and led by godly men. And so Paul and Barnabas, in every church that they administered to, they set up men who are going to lead, men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. 
men who are going to faithfully proclaim the word of God, men who are not going to back away from hardship and trial, men who are going to be faithful to the church and faithful to their families. These men are going to lead them in the days ahead. Friends, the church is here to equip you. The, the church is here to equip you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to push you forward in the hard days ahead. We have elders here who lead us and are desirous of us to live godly and dignified lives. We simply have to tap into the tools that God has laid out for us. Secondly, we see that Paul and Barnabas strengthen the church by encouraging the saints. They make their way back home to their sending church. They make their way back to Antioch, the one that sent them out. And what they do is they gather the believers together and they show them all that God had done through their hands. They showed them the power of God for salvation to the Gentiles. They encourage the saints by telling them what God has done. There's really nothing more encouraging to my soul than to hear when people are faithfully proclaiming God to friends and family. Nothing more encouraging. You want to encourage a brother and sister? Tell them what God is doing in your life. Tell them how God is using you as a tool to advance the kingdom of God. I recently had somebody over at my house a few weeks ago, and we were just sharing opportunities in which God had opened up doors for us to, to share Christ with other people. And, and, and this friend of mine was, was sharing how, how at his job, this opportunity to share the gospel just landed in his lap. He didn't have to do anything about it. He simply just had to open his mouth and speak. And that strengthened my soul. It encouraged me to do the same thing. This is what we're here for, to be proclaimers of God's truth to a world that needs to hear it. And we need each other to do so. Friends, faithfulness under pressure is evidenced by a resolve to proclaim God's word, a humility that puts God on display, a relentless courage to keep going, and a commitment to the building up of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you so much that you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. That we have hope through your son. And through your son, we are able to endure the most difficult days. Your spirit equips us and strengthens us to continue forward in this mess, mission that you have set before us. And I ask for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would be faithful in that gospel proclamation, that we'd be humble in every area of our lives, that we would continue forward, and that we would be together in unity with this mission. 
Father, may you be glorified this morning as we come before the table. May you strengthen our souls. May you strengthen our souls to continue. We praise you for your loving kindness, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.